Thanks, Nick, and the uh, worship team for leading us. And um, as has already been mentioned, this, this weekend we're, we're looking at the theme of being pilgrims. I wonder what you're looking forward to in 2022, this new year. We're still in January. What are you looking forward to? I'm sure that after almost two years now of, of COVID-19, with all the disruption to our lives and uh, the sadness for many people they've experienced through illness and the loss of loved ones, I'm sure we're all looking forward to a better year in 2022. And that's good and that's right. And we're praying for that. But this weekend as a church, we're thinking of more than just one year ahead. In our series on feasts and foundations, um, the foundations and the feasts of the Old Testament and the Old Testament church, we've been thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as it's sometimes called. So let's just think, first of all, what's, what on earth is the apl application of thinking about an ancient feast like that? What does it have to do to us, for us today? Let's think, first of all, and then of the Feast of Booths. What was it? Well, it was the third and last big annual feast of the Jewish calendar. It was held in October. It was held to celebrate the harvest. It was to remind the ancient church of God's faithfulness to them, especially during the time that they were pilgrims through the wilderness. So yes, that hymn was absolutely fine, Rach. It was good, apart from being a great Welsh hymn as well. But uh, it certainly comes right in with our theme here. And they were holding these feasts and this Feast of Booths to remind them that as God was faithful to them in the wilderness, so he would be faithful all the way on their journey. And then when they lived in the wilderness, of course, they, they lived in tents. And so every year, that's why they kept the feast by coming up to Jerusalem and then staying in these little flimsy tent-like structures which were called booths. It was a physical reminder to them of God's faithfulness to them in the past. If you listen to Owen... Uh, on Friday evening on, on Zoom, um, he told us, actually, that the original plan for us as a church to, to really get into the spirit of, of these feasts, and this one, the Feast of uh, Booths, he said, apparently, that the original plan was to spend the weekend camping in the car park. <laughs> that might be just one thing you're glad COVID put a stop to. I, I don't know. But, by the way, um, if you... If you want to listen to that talk again, uh, it's now on the YouTube, the church YouTube, and it's available. So if you missed that live Zoom meeting on Friday night, you can still listen to the talk. And there, Owen goes into more detail, an explanation of the history and the meaning of the Feast of Booths there. It's very good. It's available. Anyway, the main purpose, one of the main purposes of the feast was for the ancient church, God's people, to remind them that by living in these tents... They were pilgrims on a journey, looking forward to a better life. To a better world, a world that God promised them, the God who had rescued them from the, the slavery in Egypt, he was promising them a better world and a better life. But even after they got to the promised land, there was still more to look forward to. There was even better to come. Even Abraham we read in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the father of the, of the nation and our spiritual ancestor by faith, 
Even he made his home in the promised land, Hebrews 11 verse 9, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham, even in the promised land, was still looking forward to a better world. Now we know as Christians that we are pilgrims, as we've said. But you know, I think there's a sense in which fundamentally that, that longing, that looking forward to a better world, that's, that's the story of the human race. It's a longing which finds an echo in each of our hearts here this morning, isn't it? That we're looking forward to something better. And of course, if you're listening online, you find an echo too. A longing for a better world. Why? Well, as we've been already praying this morning, we look around the world this morning, and we see so much that is unfair, unjust, unacceptable. So much disease and distress and distrust. So much that's wrong and we long for a better world. Or if we're honest, sometimes we, we look into our own personal situations and uh, life circumstances and, and we know the disappointments that we experience. The broken relationships, the fears, the failures, the guilt. We all experience and we long for something better. We long for a better world. A world where wrongs are put right. Where relationships are restored. A world where our, our deepest longings are satisfied. That's something that is true of all humanity. C.S. Lewis, in his great little book, Mere Christianity, he said this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's true, isn't it? But then you ask, well, well why? why? Why can't this world really satisfy us? Surely there are many wonderful things in this world, and there are. Things that can bring us happiness, pleasure, there's love, there's friendship, there's art, there's music, there's beauty, there's the natural world, there's food, there's leisure, all sorts of things, yes, of course. But you see, these are all gifts to us from God. And our problem is that we want the gifts, but we reject the giver. That's the big story of the Bible. We want the gifts, but we don't want the giver. And the result of our rejection of God and going our own way is a world that's in the mess it is this morning. And our individual lives are also messed up because of our selfishness and our rejection of God and his way. So what we need is a new start. We need a new beginning. And that's exactly what the Christian gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is all about. So let's then think secondly about the new beginning. Now in that passage that Nick just read from Romans 8, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the new start that Jesus came to bring for all of us. 
The chapter opens with these wonderful words. We didn't read them, but you may know them. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing statement. Because, you see, as we are, selfish, failed, living in a world that is failing, we are under that sense of condemnation. But... Paul reminds us that in Jesus Christ, those who have come to put their trust in him, there is now therefore no condemnation. Why? Well, because, as he says, what the law, his good law, was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, we couldn't keep it, God did something by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be the sin offering for us. In other words, when we trust in Jesus Christ, in his death as an offering for our sin and in his resurrection as life-giving victory for us all, victory over evil, we are, we are free. Free to start again. It's a new start. Forgiven. A new life. No longer under the condemnation of God's law. In 1738, Charles Wesley wrote that great hymn, And Can It Be? And you know one verse from it. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in his righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, God shouldst die for me? Amazing love. That's the new start for us individually. And Paul wants us to know about it and I trust we know something about that new start as we trust in Jesus. But of course, that's not the end of our troubles, as Paul acknowledges in this, in this chapter, which you've read from. Paul says, we will still experience suffering as we wait for the beginning of a new and a better world that's coming. And we have three remarkable statements by the Apostle Paul here and just in these few verses. First, in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. We live on a groaning planet. The whole of creation is groaning. We know something is radically wrong with the world. And it's suffering. This is the big story of the Bible. It's suffering because it's out of step with the purpose for which it was created. Theologians, Bible scholars use the, the word the fall to describe the massive disruption of creation caused by our own rebellion, the rebellion of mankind and evil entering the world. And so we live on a groaning planet. Things aren't right. The Bible is very clear that the world that we now inhabit is very different from the world God originally created. You meet people, I've met people, many people say, oh, I can't believe in God because of all the suffering in the world. And you can understand that statement. But listen, to judge God on the condition of the world today is a big mistake. It's unfair. Philip Yancey, a, a Christian writer, put it like this. He said, imagine that vandals break into a museum displaying paintings of Rembrandt or, or Monet, and in sheer destructiveness, they splash red paint over all the canvases and they, they slash the paintings with their knives. Well, now, it would be the height of unfairness 
to then go and display these works spoiled by vandals as representatives of these great artists. Rembrandt and Monet, that wouldn't be fair. Says Yancey, the same applies to God's creation and the world that we're in. We are part of a masterpiece, but a masterpiece ruined. And we can't blame the artist for the ruin. We inhabit a groaning planet. And then secondly, Paul says here, we are groaning people. Not only so, verse 23, not only so, says Paul, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait. The groaning of this fallen earth finds a personal expression in each of our lives. We, we are groaning, we are longing, we are ruined by the sin, as Bible, the Bible calls it, our, our rebellion against God. We are rebels, and, and we've spoiled that relationship with God, and we've, we're cut off from the enjoyment of that spiritual life, and all that we do affects the, the life around us as well. Life in all its fullness is what God intended it to be, but we, we, we're cut off from it. And the sad effects are seen all around us in society and, and in the world. We are groaning people living in a groaning world. So, is there any hope for a better world? Are there any answers to the mess, to the suffering of this world? Is there anything to look forward to? And even if God didn't begin it all this way, then why does he allow it to go on? Is he indifferent to our suffering? Does he not care about us? And so that brings us to the third amazing statement that Paul makes here, and perhaps it's the most remarkable of all. Paul speaks of a groaning God. Did you notice that in verse 26? The Spirit of God himself prays for us with groans too deep for words. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit, the groaning God. And what is the Spirit of God groaning for within us? Well, he's groaning for the same reason as the whole of creation in verse 21 and all the people, me and you, groaning in verse 23. We are all looking forward. We are waiting for the new world that's coming because the uniquely Christian truth that changes our whole perspective on the future is that God himself has entered into our mess. Yes, he does care. And he's entered into it to do something about it. But the job isn't finished yet. That's the big picture of the Bible. How? Well, Jesus Christ shows us a groaning God. He actually literally groaned, John tells us, when he stood in front of that grave of his friend Lazarus. He could feel, he felt, what sin and death and, and all that is bad had, had brought to the world. And he groaned. But he did more than that, of course. He assumed the final responsibility for the world that he has made, and he assumed even the responsibility of meeting the demands of the laws that we've broken. And he went all the way to the cross to be, as Paulus says here, our sin bearer, our sin offering, in order to rescue us from the consequences of our own disobedience and our own rebellion. God in his love and mercy in Jesus Christ has come to rescue us, to give us a new start now and the hope of a new world that's still to come. Because the rescue that Jesus set in motion, the new start, will one day, says the Bible, include the restoration of the whole of the cosmos, the groaning planet, the whole of creation. And we are waiting. We are waiting for the, the full realization 
of the salvation that Jesus has achieved. So what are we waiting for? Well, thirdly and finally, a new creation. That's what the Bible calls it. Notice what Paul says we are waiting for in particular. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what we're waiting for. You see, in Christian theology, our bodies are very important. It's actually a, a Greek idea, the Greek philosophers, that saw the body as uh, some, a burden to be escaped from. And unfortunately, Greek thought um, has influenced a lot of Christian thinking and theology down through the centuries. It's influenced in a negative way, in the way that now some Christian theology has, has presented the body as something that's unimportant. It's not part of God's plans. And it's influenced the way in which we've thought about the nature of the future of Christians and eternal life. It's led to a wrong expectation of eternal life as some sort of disembodied existence in some sort of heavenly floating state on celestial clouds playing harps forever and ever. Well, no thanks. They can keep that. I mean, I'm not, nothing against harps. That's wonderful. But that sort of ethereal, insubstantial, ghostly sort of just soul ex existence. That's not what the Bible talks about. No, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. By contrast, both Old and New Testament speak of a future life which will be substantial, will be fulfilling, will be free, will be beautiful in bodies that will be renewed and restored without sickness and disease and disappointment and crippling limitations. All that will be gone. Paul says our bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. And all this will be in the new heaven and the new earth. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah, he prophesies about this in chapters 65 and 66, where he sees all the nations, peoples, he says, from Africa and Greece, or the Gentiles, distant lands, coming to worship the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth which God will make. And then, in the New Testament, the renewal of all creation is eagerly anticipated. The paradise that we lost through the fall will be a paradise regained in the, the new heaven and the new earth. And we will enjoy that new creation with renewed bodies. We are looking for a better world. That's the final vision of the book of, of Revelation in chapter 21. It's worth reading it here. Listen to what John says. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
So you see, the Bible's, it finishes this big, big picture that the last great vision of the end of time is not so much of us all going up to heaven forever in the clouds, but of God coming down to earth and of making everything new. Now, listen, it's not wrong, of course, to speak of us going to heaven when we die. We, we talk about going to heaven when we die. But I think we need to understand that heaven, in, in that sense, it's like a transit lounge for the final destination of the new creation that's coming. When we lived in Namibia, in southern Africa, we often flew from Windhoek, the capital, to London Heathrow via Frankfurt in Germany. When the plane arrived in Frankfurt, we would hear the announcement to all the passengers bound for London to proceed to the transit lounge and to wait for the final flight of your journey home to Heathrow. Now, as it happened, the transit lounge, in Fra transit lounge aren't always wonderful, but in Frankfurt, the transit lounge was great. There was plenty of room for our kids to run around. There were refreshments. There were toilets. There were comfortable seats, if, even if you wanted to lie out and have a little bit of a nap. And, of course, you didn't have to worry about anything like going through customs again or getting any checks or tests or, or having your luggage looked at or examined. No, all that was behind you. You were just waiting. It was just a short, stress-free wait until you got to your final destination. Now, in a sense, in a very poor sense, heaven, for those who've died in Christ, is like the transit lounge. It's, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's a place of peace and security because it's with Christ, which is better by far, says Paul. It's better than anything we can know now. But heaven, when you die, it's not, in that sense, it's not where we will be forever. It's a transit lounge. It's where we will be safe until God brings about this amazing transformation of the whole cosmos as part of the new creation promised in both the Old and the New Testament. And only then, in the new heaven and the new earth, will we have reached our final destination. And so, the ancient church, the Jewish people, held this annual festival of booths to remind them that a better world was coming. Life in this fallen world was only temporary and quickly passing. But of course, that didn't, that didn't in any way diminish its importance. Life, the body, physical life is important. And it's the same for us. It's true for us as God's people today. I happen to like one of my favorite films is Gladiator. Don't judge me on that, please. But um, I love the words of uh, Roman General Maximus. You know them, don't you? He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And that's true. This life matters because our bodies matter. Everything we do, the choices we make, how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our abilities and the gifts that God has given us, the people we help, or the cries of, of need that we ignore, it matters. And all that we do as God's people helps to make this a better world now, and it all echoes in eternity then. And you see, if we want to be part of that new creation then, in all its wonderful fullness, 
We need to be part of the new creation now, part of this plan, part of this project. We need to know the new beginning that only Jesus can give us here as we trust in him and as we journey on as pilgrims with his people, with his church. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. That life begins now and it finds its glorious, substantial, tangible, wonderful fulfillment in the new world that's coming. So what are you longing for? What are you living for? What are you hoping for? You know, as Christian people, we should be the most hopeful in all the world because we have this new life now and we have this amazing hope and promise of something beyond our wildest dreams still to come as we pilgrim on. And as we do that, in the words of our last song, we know that we have one who is in heaven now interceding for us, the Lord Jesus, and he's given us his spirit now to help us on our pilgrim way. So we're going to close with our, our last song. <laughs>